God's redemptive story. You might call them the Old and New Testament. I call them chapters one and two of God's grand redemptive story. But before we start, I want you to know where we're headed. First is this. I want you to know that at the end of our service today, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to Jesus if you've never done that before. The opportunity to say yes to him. Many of you have done that before, and that's great. Many of you are not in a place where you're ready to do that, and that's okay too. Uh, But all of us kind of have questions, don't we? And you might have a million outstanding questions questions. Bayview Glen is a great place to ask questions and hopefully find some answers. But sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, individuals come to this place in their life where they say, I might have a million questions, but, but I have one answer to one very critical question. And that very critical question is this, would you like to say yes to Jesus? Would you like to say yes to his invitation of grace? And there are some people in this place I am confident this morning, I believe that God would do this this morning, that would prepare your heart to say yes to Jesus today. I want you to know that you're going to have the opportunity to do that. That's not for everybody. Some of you are not in that spot yet. But for some of us, this, this will be your day to say yes to Jesus. Number two, I want you to know where we're going this morning. I want you to know where we're going to end up, where we're headed, so that you kind of get your mind around where we're going and you can watch God do that and unfold it as we go through the scripture this morning. So here's our one bottom line truth, and we're going to be unpacking and understanding this one bottom line truth our whole service this morning. It's this. God is all powerful, all wise, and all for you. Wait, wait, wait. Note takers. I already see you writing it down. Don't write it down yet. Don't write it down. Don't write it down, because I want to make one little change. I want to make one little change to this bottom line truth, and then you can write it down. Pause for a minute. Just look up at me here, okay? Today, I want us to see that God, the living God, the one and only God, has exhausted his inexhaustible power and has leveraged his inexpressible, limitless wisdom for you. So that he could show you and me favor that we did not deserve, kindness that we did not merit, goodwill that we did not earn. That all-powerful and all-wise God is in it to show you grace. I want you to see that God has always been for you, not against you. And in all of this, God achieves his ultimate goal, which is to glorify and magnify himself. And because I don't want this to stay in theoretical terms today, I want us to personalize it, to own it. So here's the one change I want to make in this bottom line truth, and then we're going to say it together and then watch God do it in the scripture. Here's the one change. God is all powerful, all wise, and all for me. Can you say this with me? God is all powerful, all wise, and all for me. Own it with enthusiasm now, all right? Let it saturate your heart just a little bit because we're going to watch it happen in the Bible. Say it with me one more time. God is all and all for me. Now let's watch God do it. If you joined us last week, You remember that the Jesus thread showed up in the story of Moses. Moses was God's prophet and redeemer. Moses spoke God's truth and redeemed God's people from Egyptian slavery. 1,500 years later, Jesus showed up on the scene. He spoke God's truth and lived God's truth and redeemed God's people from the tyranny of sin and death. So in this way, Jesus was an even greater prophet and redeemer than Moses, according to the book of Hebrews, but God's redemptive story does not stop with Moses. Did you know that? 
Because once Moses led God's people out of Egyptian slavery and toward the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham, God personally delivered both his covenant promises and the covenant stipulations. And when God delivered the stipulations, when he delivered his expectations associated with that covenant, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, what? We will do. Did they do it? No. Not even a little bit. Not even close to all. They made that commitment, but they failed to keep it. And so, as a result, the generation of God's people that, led, or that, that, that Moses led out of Egyptian slavery and toward the promised land never made it to God's promised land, to the rest that God had intended for them. They perished in the wilderness as a result of their disobedience. But, since God is all-powerful all wise, and all for us, he does not default on his promises. So God raised up a new leader, Joshua, who led a nomadic, disjointed federation of 12 tribes that descended from the 12 sons of Jacob into the land of rest that God had promised to Abraham 600 years before God came through. And when Joshua died, a series of 12 individuals called judges, some of the most famous are Gideon and Samson, presided over the 12 tribes. So those judges, once the nation of Israel was in that promised land, supervised legal hearings between individuals and between tribes. And they, they did that in the nation of Israel and they helped God's people to settle the promised land piece by piece. Some of those judges were good, some of those judges were bad, they were all far from perfect. The twelfth and final judge and prophet was a man named Samuel. And during Samuel's tenure as judge in Israel, the nation began, to, God's nation, God's people, began to compare themselves to other nations around them. Well, they all have a king, they thought. So we need one too. Samuel pleaded with the nation of Israel not to do it, but they persisted in their demand for a human king, and God acquiesced. But before God gave the people what they wanted, a human king, God affirmed, he said, they, he's talking about the nation of Israel now, have not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Rejecting God as king is bad. Okay, Does everybody know that? Just when the Bible says that. This is not a good thing. He says, look, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. In calling for a human king, God's people, Israel, had rejected God as king. But let's be clear. God's redemptive plan always included a king and a kingdom. So his issue was not with a monarchy in Israel. His issue was that the people demanded a king for the wrong reasons. We want to be like all the other nations around us. And, and his issue was that they demanded a human king rather than submitting to God as their all-powerful, all-wise, and all-for-them heavenly king. So the first king in Israel, Saul, the one the people chose, was a complete disaster. Disunity, oppression, economic struggles, and the entire nation of Israel, including God's 12th judge and prophet Samuel, grieved during Saul's reign as king. But God planned to appoint 
a new king. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. When Samuel came to Bethlehem, Samuel invited Jesse and his sons to worship with him so that God could identify Israel's next king. Samuel started with Jesse's sons, and he started where most of us would start, with the oldest son. Scripture reads this way. It says, when they came, that's Jesse and his sons, Samuel looked on Eliab. This is the oldest. We'll learn later that he's a very competent young man, and he's a warrior. Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, listen close, I love this. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. That's how they chose Saul. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Aren't you glad, by the way? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now I want you to watch all powerful God at work here. As more sons of Jesse pass before Samuel. It says, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. God's exercising his sovereign choice. In other words, who's in control here? Almighty God, not man. Keep reading, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Like, is this all of the kids you've got? There's got to be more. And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. <laughs> which, is, which is not exactly a compliment. All right. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And Jesse sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means he was red-complected, red hair, flush face. Uh, does flush mean red in the face? All right, cool. Uh, that's what that word means. Whatevs. And had beautiful eyes. This is David now. And was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for what? This is he, the next king in Israel. So Samuel anointed David. Years later, King Saul would tragically take his own life and David would ascend to the throne in Israel. From that day forward, God began to establish his kingdom as he designed it. Adam was God's representative. Abraham was the father of God's people. Moses was God's prophet and redeemer, but David was God's king. Let's add emphasis here, though, for the sake of clarity. David was God's king, chosen by God, anointed by God, empowered by God. God established David, not the other way around. God's kingdom was personified in David, but this was always about God. Now initially, David exhibited the characteristics that God desired in a king, and the kingdom prospered in peace and unity and blessing. Under David, Israel became a united kingdom rather than a loose confederation of tribes. David's first act as king was to recapture the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and the Ark held the stone tablets that God had given to Moses, his covenant, his law, his promises and stipulations over 500 years before, and it was the 
the center of worship in Israel. In other words, David reestablished devotion to Yahweh in Israel. Through David, God protected Israel from all its enemies. Through David, God was establishing his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of blessing for all nations, just as he had promised to Abraham, a kingdom of peace. In fact, God promised that David's kingdom would last forever. Look at the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God speaking through his prophet Samuel. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a nice way of saying, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom keep going he shall build a house for my name that's the temple and i will i will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son keep going when he commits iniquity i will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as i took it from saul remember that's the previous king who i put away before you And your house, that means your lineage, someone from your family, and your kingdom shall be made sure for how long? Forever. As outcasts would say, like forever, ever? Forever. Yes. Before me. Your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. In short, God promised David a forever kingdom. God promised David a forever kingdom kingdom but if you're paying any attention at all you probably have two problems with this statement don't you number one David's kingdom did not last forever last time I checked David's dead so is his kid Solomon and the throne that he once sat on is long gone that's absolutely true David's devotion to Yahweh did not last David's list of sins included adultery and then murder to cover his tracks, and God's kingdom began to unravel. Within two generations after David, 12 tribes that were once united split, 10 tribes in the north and two in the south. The southern tribes retained their capital at Jerusalem and fought to remain faithful to Yahweh and worship and obedience. The 10 northern tribes strayed much quicker and the consequences were drastic. In the late 8th century, you can just look at this in the history books, in the late 8th century, the Assyrian Empire came in and obliterated the northern tribes of Israel. Two tribes, the tribe descended from Benjamin, the tribe descended from Judah, formed the southern kingdom, but eventually the Babylonian empire proved too strong, and the final two tribes of Israel fell in 586 BC. Listen close. The capital city of Jerusalem that God established through David, the temple that he had built through Solomon were destroyed. God's people were exiled from God's land that he had promised to Abraham. The kingdom that God had himself had installed was no more David's throne was gone and if you watch the news it has not come back so David or his son Solomon cannot be God's forever king can they here's problem number two you might be thinking okay well like this is the church answer it's Jesus right Jesus is God's forever king But if you paid attention to that scripture at all, you would say Jesus cannot be the fulfillment of the Davidic promise because Jesus, when when God speaks of David's descendant and successor, God says through Samuel, when 
he commits iniquity. Did you catch that? When he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and discipline him. So that can't be Jesus because Jesus was sinless. Jesus did not commit iniquity. You're right. The king that commits iniquity is not Jesus. And neither David or Solomon lasted forever, so they're not the forever king. So what's going on here? What's up with God's Davidic promise, his Davidic covenant, his promise to establish his throne forever? Now, this is where we've got to do some heavy theological lifting this morning. Are you ready to do that with me? Let's just take a deep breath before we do that. Ready? Right, now we're ready. We're ready to do some heavy theological lifting. Okay, here's what we know. We know that God's promises involve ongoing stages of fulfillment. We know that God's promises involve ongoing stages of fulfillment. As time marches forward, we watch God fulfill all of his promises in stages. Theologians and scholars have a lot of really fancy words for God's promises involve ongoing stages of fulfillment. I've got a really simple word for it. It's called the Kilimanjaro effect. So let me give you an illustration that will help you understand what's happening as God fulfills his covenant promise to David that he made in 2 Samuel 7. A few years back, my wife Amy and I had the opportunity to visit Tanzania, Africa. Anybody from that part of Africa, by the way? Cool, good, nobody. All right, so nobody can correct me. Um, <laughs> so this is actually all true because I used Wikipedia too. But we're, So we're in Tanzania. We're in Tanzania, and while we were there, we saw Mount Kilimanjaro. So if you don't know about Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Kilimanjaro is almost 20,000 feet above sea level. It's the highest mountain on the continent of Africa. It is absolutely enormous. Even from miles away, it is a sight to behold. It is massive. It absolutely dominates the horizon. It's hard to even look at anything else when you're looking out towards Mount Kilimanjaro, but if you're miles away from Mount Kilimanjaro, it looks one-dimensional. Can you picture that with me? It, it looks flat. It doesn't have a lot of dimension to it. It doesn't have a lot of sophistication and intricacy to it. It's just a big, big, big mountain out on the horizon. But when we left Tanzania, we got in a plane and we flew over Mount Kilimanjaro. And I realized that the mountain that once looked one-dimensional has an enormous footprint. And within that footprint, there is a lot more going on than I originally thought. Kilimanjaro has vegetation and life to it. There's snow on the peak. There are valleys and rivers. There are rocks and trees. There are elephants and zebra that live on Mount Kilimanjaro. So a top view of Mount Kilimanjaro revealed that it was far more complex than I originally thought. It's sophisticated, in fact. It's not flat. It's not one-dimensional. It's very, very sophisticated. Now watch this. The same idea applies with God's covenant promises, including his covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. For David and Solomon's generations, seeing God's promise to establish his kingdom through the house of David was like seeing Kilimanjaro from miles away. They saw David... They saw Solomon, that's the son that God would chastise with the rod of men when he committed iniquity. God held his promise there. 
but they, they, what they saw was very limited. It was very one-dimensional. It was almost flat. So when the prophets followed David and Solomon, it was almost as if God metaphorically put some prophets on a plane and gave them a top view of his promise so they could see the complexity and sophistication. Now, please, understand God did not actually put prophets on a plane. Do we get that? Okay. But he gave them the ability to see far beyond what David and Solomon could see and what Samuel could see on the horizon. God's promise was immense. God's promise was big. It absolutely dominated their view of what was coming for them, their future hope. But God's prophets saw the complexity and sophistication and it saw that it was multidimensional, that it involved ongoing stages of fulfillment. So the prophets that served after David's reign Joel, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezra, Nehemiah, just to name a few. They all begin to see how rich and full and multidimensional God's promise was. They begin to see that God had far more in store to establish the throne of David forever than just David and Solomon. They began to see it wasn't flat. It was a lot more sophisticated than they originally thought. So as time marched forward, a desire for a king greater than David began to emerge in Israel. Each and every Old Testament prophet began to speak about a chosen one, a new Davidic king that would fulfill all of God's promises to David, that would restore God's kingdom to its original intent and that would reign on the throne of David forever. There is not a single prophet in the Old Testament that does not point to God's future hope. If we sat here and read every Davidic kingdom prophecy, every messianic prophecy from the Old Testament, we would be here till Christmas Eve and you wouldn't have to take the shuttle. It's chock full. Perhaps the prophet that communicated God's promise most clearly, that God's promise involved ongoing stages of fulfillment, that he just wasn't done with David, he wasn't done just with Solomon, perhaps that prophet, and perhaps the one we're likely most familiar with, is a man named Isaiah. He lived about 120 years after David died, about 80 years after Solomon died, and about 800 years before Jesus Isaiah wrote this of the coming Davidic king. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom... There we are. To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Prophet after prophet in the Old Testament pointed to that future hope long after David died and long before Jesus was born. All the way up until Malachi, the final Old Testament prophet, Israel's hope for a forever king, a powerful king, a good king, a wise king, and all for them king was almost 
palpable. They were itching for that next stage of God's promised fulfillment. God had revealed it to the prophets, and now the nation of Israel, and indeed all creation, was waiting with bated breath. It was as if they could feel God about to move. And then God went quiet. No prophets, no word from the Lord, no kings, nothing for like 500 years. History marched on. A guy named Alexander the Great, you probably heard of him, conquered the known world, introduced Greek culture, it's called Hellenization, into even Israel. The Roman Empire followed Alexander. And then toward the end of the first century B.C., The ruler of the free world was the Roman emperor. Not exactly free, but the ruler of the world was the Roman emperor. The Roman emperor demanded worship. He claimed that he was God incarnate. He thought that he had all power and all wisdom, but he needed more money. So in order to get more money, he had to tax the people that were were under his control. And in order to tax them, he had to count them. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. i got to count them. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of, say it with me, David, which is called Bethlehem because he was at the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Just as we saw Pharaoh adopt Moses into his own home rather than slaughtering him like he did the rest of the Hebrew babies and Moses grew up to become God's redeemer, Caesar Augustus, who thought he was God incarnate, was unwittingly upon in the hand of Almighty God and issued a decree that all the world would be registered and had to go to their hometown. So Joseph and Mary, pregnant as she was, packed up and went to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Jesus was to be born in the city of David. This is why the angels announced to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is why if you were writing a biography of Jesus, you would start with something like, this is the greatest book you'll ever read, or this book is about the greatest man that ever lived, or this book will change your life, or this book is fantastic or amazing. But the first biography of Jesus that's included in the New Testament doesn't start that way. Matthew starts this way, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The New Testament's obsession with the city of David is not an issue of geography, it's an issue of monarchy. Jesus is the promised and rightful forever king. This is why the author of Hebrews begins his book this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what we've been talking about through this entire series and even today. God speaking through the fathers and the prophets, but... Verse 2, in these days he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. But of the son, he says, watch, this is God the Father speaking to the son, Jesus, says, your throne, O God, is how long? 
forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus, from the lineage of David and the house of David, fulfills the Davidic promise. Jesus is the forever king. He came to bring God's kingdom of unity, peace, and joy. He came to give his life to redeem his people. And he proves that he holds all power and wisdom because he is risen from the dead. And now he intercedes for you and offers you redemption and grace and freedom and joy and life and blessing. He is all for you in order to bring himself glory. This is the message of the gospel. What God promised to Adam that his descendant would crush the head of the serpent. What God promised to Moses that he would raise up a prophet like him. What God promised to Abraham that through his descendants all nations would be blessed. And what God promised to David a forever king. Each and every promise of the entire Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. In Jesus, God shouts yes to all of his promises. He says yes to our hope. He says yes to our salvation. He says yes to our redemption. He says yes to sending his son, Jesus, God incarnate as the promised, rightful, forever king that reigns on the throne of David. The good king, the powerful king, the wise king, the gracious king. And for thousands of years, God has been unfolding his redemptive plan one chapter at a time. And the common thread that runs through each stitch and fabric of the tapestry that, uh, that is God's redemptive history is Jesus and only Jesus. And it's all for you and me. Now that's pretty cool. From the beginning of time, God had you in mind. And unfolded a plan to rescue and save and fulfilled every promise he ever made. And just as all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, God has already said yes to us, yes to salvation, yes to extending us grace. Our opportunity now is to say yes to him. Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago not to remain a baby but to grow up to live the life we were meant to live and fulfill all of God's expectations on our behalf, to die the death that we were meant to die as a substitute for us. He rose again on the third day. He appeared to his disciples and over 500 witnesses, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. His kingdom has been inaugurated, and one day he will return. That will be the second advent to complete and consummate his kingdom. A response to the good news about Jesus is simply saying yes to God. It's not complicated. You don't have to get baptized first. You certainly don't have to clean your life up first. You don't have to have communion first. You don't have to take a class first. Just between you and God and the quietness of your heart, it's simply saying, yes, God, I agree with you that you are all powerful, all wise, and all for me that you are here for my joy in order to bring you glory, that you're the good, gracious, rightful, forever king, and I've run away from that. But you offer redemption in and through your son Jesus, and I want to say yes to salvation today.
For some of you, you know that's you today. There's something happening inside of you right now. There's a stirring. Maybe you feel a little bit anxious. Maybe you feel a little bit of something inside of you. That's not heartburn. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God prompting you to respond affirmatively and say yes to Jesus. And I just want to give you that opportunity to do that right now. Would you bow with me? For many of you, you said yes to Jesus a short time ago. For many of you, you said yes to Jesus a long time ago. For many of you, this isn't your day. You still have questions. You're still wrestling with things of faith and exploring things of faith and getting to know God. And we're so glad that you're here. Please come back. But for some of you, today is your day to answer that one critical question. Would you like to say yes to Jesus? Here's your opportunity to do that. It's simply praying a prayer Something like this. You don't have to use these exact words. You certainly don't have to pray out loud. God hears your thoughts in your heart. Saying, God, I want to say yes to you today. I recognize that for thousands of years, you've been unfolding a plan to redeem and save me. To give me a hope and a future. To show me grace. To give me peace and joy so that you would get magnified, so that you would get glorified. And I've run away from that plan, but God, I trust today in your son Jesus that you made a way for me to be redeemed and saved and cleansed and new. So I say yes to your invitation. I say yes to learn to walk with you daily and say yes to your good and gracious and rightful forever rule in my life. I say yes, Jesus, to you. If you would do me a favor and just kind of keep your eyes closed. If you're not, don't have them closed, you don't have to do that, but please, I just ask you for the sake of privacy to do that for me, if you would. So I'm gonna ask those of you who said yes to Jesus today to slip your hand up, not quite yet. And I know it's a bold move, I know it takes a lot of courage. That's why I'm asking people not to be looking around just between me and you because I want to be able to pray for you today. So if you said yes to Jesus for the first time, nobody looking around just between me and you, would you just slip your hand up for me so I can pray for you? Fantastic. 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 It's great to see you. Great. It's awesome. God, thank you for the boldness and courage of these individuals who said yes to you for the first time today. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that you have written their names down in your life book and they will never be erased. Thank you that they're now adopted into your family. Thank you that you have plans for them. Thank you that there's now no condemnation for them. I pray that they would have assurance today in their salvation, not because of anything they've done, but because of what you've done. And because now they've stepped in and said yes to that redemptive plan that you put into action thousands of years ago. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. You know, you can see God's promises from afar. They kind of look one-dimensional. You can observe their grandeur and immensity. Or you can see them from the top and notice that there's far more there than you realized. But there's one more view of God's promises, isn't there? The right up close view. What if you weren't miles away from God's grand redemptive promises? 
What if you weren't in a plane above them, seeing them from the top and seeing the big footprint and the complexity and sophistication? What if God took you and dropped you down right in the middle of his covenant promises? What would it look like to see all of what God had promised, all that he had done, come to complete fulfillment? It's as if God did that for a man named John a little less than 2,000 years ago. John was an apostle of Jesus, and he gave John the opportunity to see his promises for what they really were, gave him an opportunity to see his promises up close and personal. And even John, when he writes his book called Revelation, what God had revealed to him, writes this in Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for how long? Forever and ever. On the throne of David, you could see it up close. And one day, you and I will get to see it up close and personal too. Everything that God has promised come to complete fulfillment. Choir, worship team, if you would do me a favor and make your way back up on platform. We're going to finish our service today with a very joyful, very triumphant song called the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And it seems that Handel understood theology a lot more than many of our modern musicians do. Are you surprised by that, by the way, that he was better at theology than Katy Perry? Um, because Handel's Messiah, in the entire thing, as a matter of fact, is essentially our sermon topic today. Don't get me wrong. Handel got his lyrics from the Bible, not from my sermon. But as the choir sings the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, my hope is that the message of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that will reign forever and ever, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will, will come alive in a new way, will capture us in a fresh way this Christmas season. It's an opportunity for us to listen to a joyful and triumphant song and to celebrate Jesus, God's forever King. Would you stand with us as we celebrate and respond in worship?